Hello and welcome to the Agios Dos. Today is May 21st and we commemorate Saints Constantine and his mother Helena. Today's saints are really quite interesting. They are two people who are canonized in the Eastern churches, yet not in the Western churches. Admittedly, I don't have the time or resources to explore that aspect of their situation, though it is a relevant oddity to note. My aim here is to bring to you the story of their lives. Typically, that's all I try to do, and I tend to veer away from making any commentary or lesson from the saint's life. I want your understanding of the saint on any given day to be more directed by their own acts and less by my own mediation. However, Constantine is someone who may need some analysis. Flavius Valerius Constantinus was born February 27th, 272, in the Roman province of Moesia modern-day Serbia. He was the son of Helena and Constantinus, who was governor of the region. His father advanced up the ranks of the Roman governance, uh, eventually becoming Augustus of the West, of the western half of the empire. Along his journey, Constantine would follow. Let's quickly go over kind of the defining moments of Constantine's life regarding his relationship to Christianity. These moments are often talked about, so that's why we won't spend too much time on them. They are the Battle of Milvian Bridge, the Edict of Milan, and the Council of Nicaea. During the civil wars of the Tetrarchy, Constantine, who by this point was co-emperor, was at war with Maxentius, his fellow co-emperor. The Battle of Milvian Bridge took place as Constantine was crossing the Tiber. While preparing for the battle, Constantine was given a vision in the sky of the Cairo, the first two letters of Christ's name. With that sign, there was also a message in Greek, and tuto nika, in this sign, conquer. Constantine had the insignia of the Cairo painted on his shields for his infantry. Constantine then won the battle and Maxentius was defeated. Fast forward to the Edict of Milan, this was a treaty in 313 AD which gave Christianity legal status within the empire. Only a few years previous, the Christians had been granted um, the Edict of Toleration by Emperor Galerius, a piece of legislation which ended Diocletian's persecution and just permitted the religion to exist. However, with the progression of Constantine's decree, Christianity now became truly legitimized in the eyes of the Roman state for the very first time. And again, we'll touch on the problem of Arianism in Constantine's time. Throughout Constantine's tenure, Arianism wreaked havoc throughout the empire and was a dividing element within the Christian camp. In 325, Constantine called upon the church to settle the matter for good and invoked an ecumenical council. The entire project was financed by Constantine, yet the final say would be ecclesiastical. The notion that the Son of God was only a creature had been rightly identified as heresy, and the proponent of this, Arius, was a heretic. When the church authority officially excommunicated Arius, Constantine would use secular authority to have him banished from the empire. Now, in all these moments, we can say that Constantine perhaps flirted with Christianity. At the very least, he took it seriously and respected it, as an element within his empire. However, he was still a pagan, and dealt with things as a pagan. Probably the best example of this comes when he finds out that his son and wife were having an affair together. Constantine's response was ruthless. His son, Crispus, 
was tried, found guilty, and was hung. His wife, Fausta, was locked within a sauna and boiled alive. Certainly not saintly acts. We'll get back to Constantine, because the Lord's not done with him yet. Let's move on for a moment and talk about Helena. I could not find any narrative of how she converted, only that she did so after Constantine's accession to the throne. Constantine has also cited that as one of her main causes to her conversion. And although I couldn't find the story, it doesn't mean that there isn't one out there. It is stated, however, that after her conversion, she would use her position of Augusta as a means of building churches in Rome and throughout the empire. She was eventually sent to Jerusalem with the disposal of the empire's treasury to locate the relics of Christianity. One source cites that Helena dedicated her journey in reparation for the sins of Constantine. Therefore, some call Con- uh, Helena uh, the first pilgrim. In her inquest, she was able to find the location of Golgotha, the place where Christ is crucified. As it was the custom to bury crosses, she had men dig 20 feet, and there they eventually found the crosses. Although it was undistinguishable between the crosses of the two thieves, so what to do? The bishop of Jerusalem, Marcarius, had the crosses brought to a dying woman who had very little time to live. After having each cross placed on top of her, Christ's cross, the third one, healed the woman. Years before, when Emperor Hadrian was in power, he used his influence to conceal the holy places where Christ died and rose again. On the site of the crucifixion, there were temples to Jupiter and Venus built. Helena had the temples destroyed. Helena had a church built on the site of the cross of the finding of the crosses, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now let's move back to Constantine. One of the main positions against the sanctity of Constantine was that he was baptized on his deathbed, and everyone did that. People knew that their sins were washed away at baptism, so he, in the same manner of many people of the time, held off baptism until death as some kind of cheap loophole. However, when you read the sources of Constantine's life, this is clearly not the case. One of these sources is Eusebius's Life of Constantine. It is true that Constantine was baptized shortly before his death. However, even prior to the downturn of his health, Constantine was a man who was beginning to change. Quote, He was completing the 32nd year of his reign, short of only a few months and days, and about twice that number of years of life. At that age, his body remained sound and unimpaired, free of any defect and more youthful than any young man, handsome to look at, and tended to do whatever needed physical strength, such as training, riding, and traveling, engaging in wars, raising monuments over defeated enemies, and winning his usual bloodless victories over his opponents. His spiritual qualities had also advanced to the peak of human perfection. He was outstanding in all virtues, but especially for kindness. Most people considered this reprehensible because of the base conduct of selfish men who attributed their own wickedness to the emperor's forbearance. It is true that we ourselves during these particular years noted two difficulties. There was a relaxation of censure against wicked, reparatious men who damaged the whole course of affairs, and there was also an unspeakable deceit on the part of those who slipped into the church and adopted and adopted the false facade of the Christian name. 
His kindness and generosity, however, the straightforwardness of his faith, and the sincerity of his character led him to trust the outward appearances of those reputed to be Christians, who, with a faked attitude, contrived to keep up the pretense of genuine loyalty to him. Eusebius is essentially saying Constantine was so kind that his once great effectiveness was no longer. It was at this time that Constantine was desiring baptism and had planned to be baptized in the River Jordan as Christ was. He was even building a church, one that is dedicated to the Holy Apostles, where he would be buried. It is clear that from this account, Constantine had become ardently pious. As he became sick, Eusebius cites the following. It is worthy of record that he reached the very end of his life, he recited a kind of funeral speech before his regular audience. Speaking at length, he discoursed in it upon the soul's immortality, on those who pass this present life devoutly, and on the good things stored up by God for those dear to him. And with long demonstrations, he made it clear what end those on the other side will meet, as he included in his script the overflow of the godless." In Constantine's journey to the Holy Land to be baptized, it would be halted when his ailments increased. Stopping in Hellenopolis, Constantine removed his purple robes and dressed in white baptismal garments. After his baptism, he vowed never to don the purple again and to only ever wear his baptismal robe. Quote, This is the moment I have longed for, as I thirsted and yearned to win salvation in God. It is our time to enjoy the seal that brings immortality, time to enjoy the sealing that gives salvation, which I once intended to receive at the streams of the River Jordan, where our Savior also is reported to have received the bath as an example to us. But God, who knows what is good for us, judges us worthy of these things here and now. So let there be no delay. If the Lord of life and death should wish us to live again here, even so it is once and for all decided that I hereafter numbered among the people of God, that I may meet and join in the prayers with them altogether. I shall now set for myself rules of life which befit God." Constantine would live another seven weeks, according to Eusebius. In some of the commentary I had seen and listened to while preparing for the episode on Constantine and Helena, one thing stood out to me. If we believe a conversion at the end of someone's life is, is somehow cheap or somehow detracts from their sanctity, merely look at the example of the good thief. The Christian tradition has considered him a saint, and his words are echoed by the faithful at every divine liturgy. Constantine, just as the good thief did, recognized Christ as Lord in the twilight of his life. Another quote from Eusebius. When all these things were being done by the emperor and his great valor on God's behalf was being praised by the mouths of all, one of God's ministers in an excess of boldness declared in his presence that he was, quote, blessed, because in this present life he had been judged worthy of universal imperial power and the next would rule alongside the Son of God. He was annoyed on hearing these words, and told him that he should not say such rash things, but should rather pray for him, that in both this life and the next he might be found worthy to be God's slave. 
I'll end off with a reading from the Kentuckian. Today Constantine and his mother Helena reveal the cross, that most precious tree which puzzles the enemies. It is the armor of Christian authorities against enemies. It has proved itself awesome in war by its many miracles. Thanks very much for listening. This has been your daily dose of Agios. Saints Constantine and Helena, pray for us.